there was there was a, a very prestigious uh, uh, high end university uh, with a similar religious affiliation uh, and uh, in, uh, in in Malibu, California, and they said, well, you know, that's really cute what you're doing. You could not do that with our donors. These are very high net worth folks. And he said, I didn't want to be offensive, uh, so I didn't say anything to them. But I looked at their list, and a third of those people were folks that I do this to every year. So really sort of entertaining to take his, hear his take on that. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 10 seconds, you know that my entire goal is to get you to schedule more visits. Most major gift fundraisers fail in this industry because they do not do the difficult, scary work of scheduling visits with the right people consistently. The majority of my success in major gifts came from constantly seeking to become as effective as possible at scheduling visits. I read tons of sales books, watched YouTube videos from sales experts, and studied Jerry Pandas' materials on the matter. On top of that, I practiced. The things I learned from experts gave me the confidence to actually make the calls. Today, I have a great resource that I highly recommend you download. Greg Warner from MarketSmart, this episode's sponsor, has put together a guide to help you schedule more visits. It's titled, Top 10 Tips for Landing More Meetings. Not only does Greg run a company that enables major gift fundraisers to be more effective, but he is a successful entrepreneur that has scheduled countless meetings and been on the receiving end of many people trying to schedule meetings with him. He knows a thing or two about this subject and provides 10 great tips, starting with a quote from someone you know I talk about on this podcast all the time, Jerry Panis. Greg is the real deal, and this guide will help you schedule more visits. Go download it now at imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. The bonus tip, number 11, is my personal favorite. Let me know what you think. Hey, everybody. We have an incredible guest this week that I'm super excited to announce, Dr. Russell James. Man, there's so much to say about this guy. I'll try to keep it fairly short, but he is a professor at Texas Tech University. He directs the on-campus and online graduate program in charitable financial planning and also teaches charitable gift law at the Texas Tech University School of Law. The dude is incredibly brilliant, and in addition to that, he has done a ton of research on uh, giving and philanthropy. And his research has been cited in outlets such as The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, U.S. News and World Reports, CNN, NBC News, Bloomberg News, ABC News, USA Today, and The Chronicle of Philanthropy, and most notably now on the One Visit Away podcast, single-handedly the most shining moment of his career. Obviously, I am being facetious here, but uh, Dr. Russell James, as you will see, is just uh, an incredibly brilliant guy who knows so much about this topic. I learned a ton just talking to him for an hour, and I know you're going to learn a bunch too. And in addition to that, he's just uh, um, 
incredibly brilliant, but also very accessible and, you know, talks in a way that uh, is very easy for everybody to understand. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with the one and only Dr. Russell James. One thing I'll get into real quick, uh, many of you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I am coming out with my first digital product. It is going to be an online course, all on major gift fundraising. I announced that last week and had quite a few people reach out saying that they want to be in that initial group uh, that I'm going to be offering this to in a couple months. And uh, so basically just for all of you who have said you're in, I've got you in this, you know, initial we got you in this list. Once I have more details figured out and timeline and stuff like that, I'll be reaching out to this list first to say, hey, um, this is you know what the, the program looks like, what it costs. I'll offer it to them first, the first 20 people uh, that sign up. So I'm, I'm going to limit that initial group to 20 people that I'll have on this list. Once I get 20 people who have you know paid for the program, um, you know, that's going to be it for the initial group. And then once I take this first group through, get their feedback, have some, you know, minor adjustments on the course, then I'll just open it up to the public and, you know, a lot more people taking it. But that's kind of the update for now. For those of you who have reached out and been in communication, I'll be in touch with y'all soon as I get more details. And if you are interested, um, still have a few spots open. So send me an email to Kevin at one visit away.com or feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn. But uh, anyway, back to Dr. Russell James. Well, welcome to One Visit Away. Russell, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks. So as we've discussed previously, you uh, have piles of papers behind you because <laughs> you are... Man, when I, was, when I was just looking at your email signature... You've got at least 35 uh, PhDs, I think, or graduate <laughs> level degrees. So tell everybody yeah. a little bit about yourself. Well, let me tell you, I took those stay in school ads way too seriously. And so this is what happens when you go down that uh, that <laughs> route. Uh, sure. So, you know, my background is uh, I, after I graduated from law school, uh, I went to work for a small residential college and I was in mm-hmm. fundraising, did planned giving uh, for a number of years. Uh, and uh, along the way, decided, you know, this whole college professor thing was what I wanted to do. Went back and got my Ph.D. in mm-hmm. uh, actually in consumer economics with a dissertation on charitable giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so l- then, let me let me pause you real quick. How did sure. you. So why were you going to law school? What was the at, at the beginning of law school? I'm guessing you were not thinking I'm going to go get a fundraising job when I uh, when I finish up here. <laughs> yeah, you know it's uh, amazing the uh, relatively small number of people who from elementary school on decide that fundraising is their uh, is their calling. It usually happens a little bit later, uh, yeah. but yeah, you know I went to law school thinking I was going to get into litigation, and yeah. uh, the reality is uh, we were forced to take of all things, tax law. And it Mm. turned out I did really well in that, really enjoyed (laughs) it. And then uh, estate planning and property law and all these sorts of things that my fellow classmates uh, thought were drudgery and I thought it was wonderful. And so uh, then to be able to connect that with uh, more of my charitable cause-related passion, uh, Mm. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And so um, I also had an estate planning practice uh, on the side, but okay. uh, uh, really just got into to fundraising as many of us do accidentally 
believed in the cause and uh, and started at sort of the more complex end of uh, of fundraising uh, yeah. in the uh, in the beginning anyway. Um, and uh, then after the PhD, well, along the way, the the college ask, actually asked me to serve as president. So I did that for five and a half years, which wow. at that institution was very much a fundraising focused position, yeah. uh, managing fundraisers, uh, uh, being a frontline fundraiser uh, myself. Uh, and, and so my focus really shifted from planned gifts to major gifts at that point. Hmm. Um, and Honestly, the school was successful. Uh, the capital campaigns went well. Uh, a lot of growth, more than tripled enrollment. Uh, and wow. uh, when that was over, my career goal was to not be anyone's boss. I just wanted to do teaching hmm. and research. Uh, and uh, that's what I've done ever since uh, for a number of years at University of Georgia. And now about 13 years I've been here at Texas Tech where I just focus on charitable financial planning. Uh, I have two classes on the law and tax aspects and two classes hmm. really looking at all the research on charitable decision-making, what causes people to decide to make a gift. And in particular, I focus on the decision to make very large gifts uh, and how that can be different. And my research has done everything from national data sets to experimental research to literally putting people in brain scanners and having them make charitable decisions, including finishing, uh, completing their estate plans to see what goes (laughs) into that decision while they're in the brain scanner. Uh, So it's all about how do we encourage generosity? Yeah, man. So I already have so many things to say. My first, I'll start with the first, which is by far the least important, which is if, uh, Man, I'm kind of sad that you didn't go down the litigation route because there would have been so many opportunities for you as a personal injury. I'm personal injury attorney. I'm thinking like, if you're hit by a bus, call Russ or something (laughs) like that. I had my billboards all planned out, and you know, (laughs) a lost opportunity. I know. Um, More important question: This research you've done, where you're like looking at people's brain activity and all that stuff, has anyone? ever done that before you or since? Yeah. So there's actually been research conducted on that, uh, Mm. looking at charitable decisions. The the difference is in the difference in a lot of my uh, experimental and other research is that we've got a lot of experimental results that deal with small dollar choices. Mm. Um, You know, do you want to you want to give $10 or not? That sort of uh, thing, because we can do that in the lab really easily. Mm. Um, But really in fundraising, the bulk of the dollars come from those um, substantial gift decisions. And so those often get complicated. They often involve assets. Uh, In many cases, they can involve estate decisions. And so that's where I've really focused my research is related to those uh, what I call major gifts of assets. Uh, And that's where things can get a bit more complicated along the way. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to get into some of that research today. But Let's start a little bit with uh, you've prepared at least a couple stories I think you'd like to share today. So if you'd just like to start off with whatever whatever's on the top of your mind. Yeah, well, so let me share this story about the importance of visits, which when I started as a new college president, I wanted to figure out, you know, basically who was doing a good job among our competitors, uh, small colleges with similar religious affiliations, in fundraising. Uh, and, and usually the age of the institution, endowment, the alumni tuition, 
that predicts contributions, right? You can figure out where, what a school should be fundraising. And that was true for all of these schools as well, except for one. There was one really small school that was raising money just completely all out of proportion to its size. And it only had one or maybe two frontline fundraisers located uh, in a rural location, but it, it got major gifts from across the country. So I had to find out why. I actually yeah. traveled there to find out hey, what's going on? And the longtime fundraiser explained his unique approach. Now, it actually started because of a physical disability that he had. Um, so sometimes he would have bad days when he just simply couldn't work, may not yeah. be able to get out of bed that day. Because of this, there was no way to predict when this would strike. And so he couldn't do the one thing that all fundraisers need to do, which is to reliably keep appointments. So here was his solution. He would get on a plane, fly to a location with a list of donors in the area. He would drive to the first house. He'd knock on the door. If the donor was home, he'd hold out his card, introduce himself and say, since I was in the area visiting other friends of the school, the president asked if I would drop off this small gift to say thank you for your years of support. Now, of course, if the donor was busy, it took no more than a minute of their day. But here's the reality. He was always invited in. Yeah. During the visit, he learned about the donor's history with the school, updated them on the latest happenings. And because this was a religious school, he would ask about their lives and ask to pray yeah. with them. And the meeting ended by leaving a request, quote, from the president to consider mm. a specific gift. But this always came with an explanation that no decision should be made on that day. Uh, mm. So these meetings actually became very powerful because he returned every year. And he knew their lives, their families, their connections, and their charitable passions. And if the donor wasn't home, he'd simply leave the gift with a personal handwritten note. Mm. So this was really powerful because he explained to me, he said, I see more donors than any five fundraisers I know. And the reason mm. is simple. I have no dead time. If a meeting yeah. runs long or short or the donor isn't home, it doesn't matter. As soon as it's done, <laughs> I drive to the next home. Now, I am not saying this as a universal solution for fundraisers, okay? But it was amazing to me how this person, because of a disabling condition, took a completely different uh, approach, and he just crushed everybody yeah. else's results by simply going and visiting and seeing people. So that was a really powerful uh, example for me as I was starting out trying to learn who does these things uh, really well? Um, and that, I guess, was uh, some of my first, uh, you might call it early research before I was in the uh, business as a research professor of yeah. learning how to encourage generosity. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man, that's so cool. I love the, uh, <laughs> I love that approach. And I, I can't imagine the, uh, the surprise on so many people's faces when like, not, not, not only is, because, uh, you know, most people's experience with organizations they give to is the level of our involvement is uh, we get letters asking us for money and that's about sure. it. And it's sure. like, this isn't a letter. This is a, a human that just showed up. He's right outside and he comes bearing gifts. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the funny thing is he uh, talked to me about uh, um, there, wa there was a, a very prestigious uh, uh, high-end university uh, with a similar religious affiliation uh, and uh, in, uh, in, in Malibu, California. And they said, mm -hmm. well, you know, that's really cute what you're doing. Mm -hmm. 
you could not do that with our donors. These are very high net worth folks. And he said, I didn't want to be offensive. Uh, so I didn't say anything to them, but I looked at their list and a third of those people were folks that I do yep. this to every year. So right. really sort of entertaining to take his, hear his take yeah, on that. And, and I, I love that you brought up that point because another thing I was going to comment on was just the, uh, I just love that when you were trying to figure out how to do this well, your first step was like, well, let me go see who's doing it really well. And then I'm going to go talk to him because there's a, there's a certain level of humility that's required to do that. Whereas I find it's very common in the fundraising world. Uh, like I know I've been guilty of this um, where it's like, for whatever reason, we as fundraisers feel like we need to know how to do everything the right way. And to say, uh, and, and to go and meet with somebody and say, like, hey, how do you do this so well? Sort of implies that we don't know how to do it really well. And we feel like we're not allowed to say that. And and it's like, if you can approach things humbly, like this uh, college in Malibu should have done, instead of just being like, oh, no, you don't understand. Like, we're sophisticated. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> they They could have learned something there. Well, and honestly, that's kind of the heart of being a researcher. You know, if you already know everything, then right. you would never make a good researcher. You know, right. it's about assuming that you don't know everything. Let's test everything. Let's talk to mm. people. Let's experiment. Let's see what works and what doesn't. And that's where we get some really interesting results. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, I love that story. What uh, what else you got? Well, so, um, you know, over time... As my career kind of tradition uh, tr transitioned, now I'm at the other end of things where I'm trying to look analytically using, you know, data sets and what's going on and who's doing a good job, but really still trying to answer that same question of what works in, in fundraising. And a uh, recent study uh, that uh, I uh, did with uh, some folks in Australia, I thought mm. really drives home this point. This is actually about legacy fundraising. And I'll mention this because this is an area where a lot of fundraisers and uh, nonprofits do it exactly wrong. And mm. what I mean by that is they'll have a donor who lets them know that they've included their organization uh, in their will document. But our metric systems are set up essentially to reward, count it, and forget it. Like mm. it's just, okay, they're a legacy society member. We can count that and we can move on. But the, leg but the fundraisers get no rewards for maintaining that relationship. Mm. So what we did is we actually looked at about a dozen of the largest charities and uh, did audits on their legacy societies. In other words, seeing who had passed away, and did you actually get a gift? Yeah. And it turned out there was a massive difference that for about mm -hmm. a quarter of those decedents, when we actually went back and looked at the records, even though these were the largest organizations, for about a quarter of those decedents, they had received no communications at all from the charity in their last two years of life. Wow. Now, for that group, the majority, they didn't leave anything to the charity. Now, you flip that around if the charity had, had had at least one communication with the donors in, the, in their last two years of life, and the majority did actually transfer dollars to charity at the wow. end of life. Now, it's one of these things where 
you know, this is a blinding flash of the obvious, right? You would think, oh, you can publish that in the Journal of Duh, right? We need to go see people. But when I talk to people at nonprofits that are doing this kind of fundraising, you actually see them executing on exactly that count it and forget it plan where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, my goal is to get new legacy society members, but no, I get no rewards for maintaining those folks who are in that process. And and it turns out from the national data that the typical process for people who are actually going to transfer dollars to charity at the end of their life is that they stop giving in the last two to three years of their life. Lots of other things sort of get in the way. Well, what happens then is that a charity communicates based solely on recency of donation. And so they go radio silent right at the moment that typically the documents are being signed. They're going to be controlling those charitable gifts. Uh, And so you get this weird situation where nonprofits, by failing to visit folks or any communication whatsoever, are actually doing things in exactly the wrong way. Um, So, you know, so so that's where we see the data is is fitting um, the importance of go see people. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's an interesting thing. One of the things this is making me think of is just this idea that people can change their minds about things. So in in the one you know you've got what you're talking about, which is you know I've included the organization in my will. I plan to give them this money, but stuff can happen in the last few years of their life where they decide, you know what, nobody's contacted me in three years. Exactly. I guess they just don't care. Um, exactly. So I'm going to give it to this other place. But I'm curious to get your perspective on this. I've had this come up a couple times with clients of mine recently where, um, well, so I was on the phone with someone the other day. He's telling me about how there was, I was asking him, you know, who are your like top donors historically? Like the, and this is a small organization. So he pointed out one person that gave them, uh, wrote a check for $175,000, uh, like two years ago. And he said when he gave the gift, and by the because this was an an abnormally large gift for him, he said, "By the way, this represents my giving for the next ten years or so." Mm -hmm. Now, no one from that organization has visited with him since he gave that gift, Mm. and my point was like, "Well, first off, we should just go visit with him because it's just the right thing to do." Uh, Absolutely. Two people can change their minds. Two years ago, no one knew. I know the stock market's having a rough time right now, but overall, over the past two years, mm-hmm. it's done far better than anyone you know w- would have foreseen. And so, mm-hmm. so he could have thought he could have a hundred percent believed this will be my gift for the next ten years. But mm-hmm. things can happen between now and then that could change that. So I'm curious: is there any research that you can think of? Uh, I guess that just illustrates like. Donors can say one thing and then act in a different way depending upon actions we take or that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things to keep in mind is to understand and to think about what kind of a relationship do we have? I mean, do we actually have a relationship where we're there to provide value to the donors by keeping them updated on the impact of their gift and what the organization is doing? Or is it really a situation where if somebody gives us a large gift and says, well, that's it, that then we don't want to talk to them anymore. Right. Well, well, that sort of says something about 
what we are trying to deliver to donors in terms of the value. And if all we really care about is them writing the check, and if we get any indication that they've already made that decision one way or the other, then we don't want to talk to them. Well, that's not the kind of relationship that long-term is going to lead to these ongoing investments. But you're absolutely right. There, There is uh, people make decisions, but then things change. It's one of the reasons why it can be so powerful to just share a story about what another donor has done with, let's say, something simple like uh, making a gift of appreciated stocks uh, and how that saves them from uh, paying capital gains tax when they make their giving that way. Well, when you're talking to that person, they may not be in a situation to make that gift, but they've learned something and and things change. I mean, the market goes up, people get inheritances, uh, you know, unexpected uh, increases, all sorts of things can happen. And if we maintain those relationships and we're sharing stories about what other people like the person we're talking to have done, that can be very powerful, very influential. And I'll tell you one of the things that we've seen in the research that is most powerful at massively increasing the donations that come from uh, donors is actually it's a psychological difference. And it's the difference between giving as something that comes from disposable income. Uh, You might think of it as pocket change and giving as something that comes from wealth. Now, wealth is held in assets. It's not held in cash or checking accounts, that sort of thing. And so this is why one of the things we see is there are dramatic changes when we can start having those wealth conversations, giving examples of gifts of wealth that other people like the person we're talking to has given because it can be transformational. It actually changes the reference point for that gift. uh, And that uh, can lead to very large donations. And we see this, for example, if we look at the growth trajectory of fundraising organizations, we can predict that growth trajectory just by asking the question, did they get any gifts of stock or was it all cash fundraising? If it was all cash fundraising, uh, they're actually on a much lower growth trajectory for the next three or even five years in their fundraising, you know, yeah. using nationally representative data. And it relates to this psychological concept. Yeah. So how do you, what does the research say uh, and your experience is the best way to uh, have a conversation about asset-based giving rather than, you know, income or cash-based or? Sure. So the best way to do this is, no surprise, is to share a story. We Mm -hmm. want to share a story of what someone like the donor has done that made a meaningful impact and was a more efficient way to give. Now, how do we get into that? You could start with something simple. Somebody asks you, what do you do? I help donors give smarter. Well, how do you do that? Well, let me give you an example. I was working with another donor. Um, you know, actually, Kevin, you remind me of him because uh, both of you are, and then I'll mention some similarity. Uh, and what he did was instead of just writing us a check, um, he decided that he was going to give us some appreciated stock. Now, it turns out that what he did was instead of giving us the cash, he used that cash to immediately 
buy brand new replacement shares in those same companies. So he didn't change his portfolio, but he actually wiped out all that capital gain uh, from his portfolio. And he got a tax deduction of the same size. I actually see a lot of our uh, donors doing this these days, because if you're not itemizing and you can't use tax deductions, this is still a way you can get a really cool tax benefit with your giving. So what have I done? I've shared a story about someone like the person I'm talking to who has made a gift of an asset that was a smarter way to give. And in fact, uh, this doesn't have to be tax planning. Uh, We can talk about how someone made a gift of an asset to create a permanent scholarship uh, or an endowed fund and talk about the impact that that has made. Uh, And again, this idea of us coming alongside the donor, being a source of good ideas, being an advisor, what I like to call the guiding sage in the donor's hero story, uh, where we give some advice that helps them complete that heroic journey to make that uh, impact, to win that meaningful victory. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Man, I've got, there's so many things we could talk about, so many different directions. I'm going to ask you, so I'm going to try to sprinkle in some real life examples here. I'm curious. So we've talked about how to do things well. Do you have any stories from your own experience or just things you've heard of that were just like disaster visits, like (laughs) (laughs) everything done uh, incorrectly or just one thing that, you know, really you know, took a visit from could have had a huge success and uh, didn't turn out that way. So it turns out, you know, so this is a really uh, difficult question because we can look at the data and we can say, okay, you should go see people. (laughs) All right. But now what, right? What do we do? And so actually in uh, a a new book that I have called The Socratic Fundraiser, um, we actually did a deep dive into analyzing what words do really successful fundraisers use? What do they say in these meetings? Uh, and, And it turns out that most powerfully what they're doing is not so much that they're telling the organization's story. Actually, what they're doing is they're asking questions. Now, they're asking questions that will typically do two different things. One set of questions are questions that help connect the donor's people or their values or their life story with the cause of the organization or maybe a project. Now, when I say the donor's people, values, and life story, Actually, what I'm saying is they're connecting the donor's identity with the organization or or the cause or the project. So how did you first get involved with this organization? And and tell me your uh, story uh, since you left the university, since you graduated from the university. Uh, And uh, does anyone else in your uh, family uh, uh, support this cause? Tell me about their connections to it. And then the second set of questions are actually questions that help the donor define a personally meaningful victory. Uh, 
So these are questions when, you know, maybe we're asking them about those blue sky questions. Hey, if money were no object, what kind of an impact would you like to have at the organization? Or what would we be doing that we're not doing right now? Or, you know, what's the most meaningful thing you could do with your money? Lots of variations on those uh, on those two questions. Now, if you want to get really sort of theoretical and deep dive wonky, it turns out that this three-step process where we start with the original identity, we connect it to a challenge, that challenge leads to a victory, and that victory leads to an enhanced identity. Those are actually the story steps in the universal hero's journey, also known as the monomyth. Uh, And so we're actually helping the donor to complete that hero's journey by asking these questions. Now, I'm not saying that if you talked to successful fundraisers, they would give you this sort of uh, Jungian interpretation of what they're doing. But when we actually look at the questions that are being used that are so powerful, they're actually making those connections. They're connecting the donor's identity to the challenge. They're showing that that challenge will lead to a victory, but not just any victory. It's a victory that's personally meaningful to the donor, meaning it connects back to their uh, identity and results in an enhanced identity uh, for the donor. That can be just simply internally, um, or it could be even publicity, depending upon uh, the donor's sort of uh, uh, affiliations. So I know I got all theoretical wonky on you there. That's what professors do. I apologize (laughs) for that. But those are some common themes we see in the actual questions that are being Mm. asked by successful fundraisers. Yeah, I love that. So, man, now that I've got you here, it's just uh, I'm just going to ask you questions because I want to know the answers that you have. And then also, Great. I'm sure our, our listeners will will learn a bunch, too. So I'll keep going. What do, what does the research say about uh, printed materials during a visit uh, or, or let's just leave it at that printed materials? What is their uh, what's their role in in major gift visits? Absolutely. So there is actually a very specific answer to this and apologies, but I'm going to relate it back to that universal hero story. Now, the universal hero story where the donor is taking this heroic journey, the hero is an archetypal character, but the hero is not the only archetypal character. There's another archetypal character, which is the hero's guiding sage. If you're a Star Wars fan, this was Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars. This is Morpheus in The Matrix. This is Gandalf the Grey in The Hobbit. This is a core archetypal character. And this Mm -hmm. is the guiding sage who comes alongside the prospective hero and helps them complete that journey. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm talking all this story stuff. What in the world does this have to do with printed materials? Here's what it has to do with printed materials. When you are going through a, um, let's say, a proposal and you have a printed document, it is very important for you as the fundraiser to maintain control of that document. When you do that, it actually helps you to come alongside the donor where you are um, – 
sitting beside or even if the donor is in a, a, a really bad position where they're directly across from you in a sort of a confrontational negotiation position, just by having that document, you're creating a bit of a triangle where you're sort of coming together uh, in the way your body angles are working. And then you move through step by step. You can circle parts. You can point to parts. But if you lose control of that document, then you completely lose that role where the donor can just block you off physically, flip yeah. through, get to the ask in the end, uh, and you lose your archetypal role in that donor hero story. Um, yeah. So it is actually really powerful that if you're using those printed materials, um, that you use them as a focus object. Now, it doesn't have to be a printed material. Look, if you're doing a tour and you're talking to somebody about a major gift, the focus object might be something else you're pointing to. But notice it's the two of you coming together and you're pointing to something and you're giving wise advice. You're giving sage counsel about yeah. what you're pointing to. And that's the deep, meaningful, archetypal role that we want to be playing for the donor. Now, that requires some expertise and hard work, and you've actually got to want to yeah. benefit the donor and help them along in their journey. Uh, but it is a very powerful role. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So there's so many things there. Um, one... Yeah, so this is an issue I see a lot with people that one thing I think people fixate too much on the printed material. It's like if we don't have the perfect, you know, case for support, no one's going to give us money. And I think what you're saying is partially the the printed material can be uh can be helpful, but it's it's not the secret sauce. It's a it's a tool that the guide uh, can employ if, if helpful. Right. And I think that fixation on the material comes from telling the wrong story. Right. <laughs> and here's right. what I mean. The small dollar gift story is the organization story. Mm -hmm. Aren't we so wonderful? Look at all the fantastic things we're doing. Don't you want to uh, honor our heroic story by laying some money at our feet? Um, okay that will get you the pat on the head gift, right? Yeah. That'll get you the isn't that nice for you gift. But if you're talking major transformational gifts, the story is the donor's story. Right. Now, the organization plays an important role in that story. Going back to the universal hero's journey, the organization is actually the hero's magical instrument or weapon that allows them to complete the journey by making them more powerful. So this is the lightsaber of Luke Skywalker or uh, yeah. Harry Potter's invisibility uh, cloak yeah. uh, or uh, teaching uh, Neo Kung Fu in the Matrix. It, it, it's, the, uh, it's the idea that this donor can now have a greater impact because Sort of like the hammer of Thor, he now has this weapon, which is your nonprofit organization to make this impact. So mm. the organization is still important, but it's not the organization hero story. It's the donor hero story. The organization is the hammer of Thor, and the hammer of Thor is really powerful and cool, but Thor is still the hero. The right. hammer is not the hero of the story. And that's what tends to lead to this fixation on materials, which is all about we want to tell our story in the most perfect way. Well, again, that's a small dollar approach. It's not a major lifetime investment gift approach if you're telling your story rather than advancing the 
donor's story and showing how your organization can be a powerful instrument for that donor to complete their personal individual donor hero story. So, so let me do say also that, uh, you know, I mentioned I have this new four book series that goes over essentially all of the uh, research that's been published, but it translates it uh, for fundraisers in a really practical way. Uh, and let me say that I share the digital version of all of that for free. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you want to kill some trees, you can go on Amazon and buy that version. That's fine. Um, but uh, that's true with all of my material. So if somebody just connects with me on LinkedIn, and I send them everything that I've ever done uh, for free because if it just sits on these shelves behind me here, it doesn't have any impact. So I want to get it out to people that are doing the good work. What else do you want to share with everybody today? You've got a, we've got about 20 minutes left before I've got to run. What are some, some more key points you think people need to know to uh, take their results to the next level? So a really interesting piece of research actually did kind of a deep qualitative dive on the most successful fundraising organizations. This is actually done in England. Uh, and what it did was to, you know, do in-depth interviews, find out what's going on. And no surprise, of course, those organizations uh, did end up visiting their donors more often. They uh, did tend to uh, focus on uh, high-capacity donors. But here was the really interesting part. When you looked at the question of why were those organizations successful at going and visiting their donors, it wasn't about them having metrics that were more inspirational to their donors. It was actually about the managers focusing on the metrics by freeing the fundraisers to spend their time to go and make these visits. Because the issue comes up is that you'll start with the manager that says, oh yeah, we want to accomplish all of these visits uh, during the course of the year, but then there will be some uh, other thing that needs to happen. Oh, there's these meetings we need to have. Oh, we've got some event that's happening. You can help out with that. Uh, and there are all of these internal crises. And it, and it turns out that the most successful organizations, they were structured in such a way that the managers themselves focused on how can I protect the fundraisers so that they can then have the time and the ability to go see the donors, which is where the real work takes place. Um, so, you know, this was a situation where oftentimes you get managers that look at metrics as a way to kind of um, micromanage the fundraisers and a real sort of aggressive top-down approach. But these organizations used metrics not as a way to manage the fundraisers so much as a way to manage the managers, as to yeah. say, why are you not creating opportunities where your people can be out more? Uh, so I thought that was was a really interesting finding when it comes to how do we actually, as an organization, generate more of these visits? Yeah. Yeah. So I 100% agree. It's It always blows my mind how infrequently people visit with their donors. And there's like many reasons for that. But part of it is this, yeah, exactly what you're talking about, where you know, you're a few levels down in the organization and your manager is just and probably because they're getting pressure from somebody above them to do all this stuff. And so for, for our listeners that are 
currently experiencing the the negative in that situation. They're not being protected by their manager. Um, and they're being asked to do all these different things. Any advice from your perspective on how they can navigate that or uh, yeah, what, what to do in that situation? Yeah, so one of the challenges here, and, and this is particularly difficult if you've got fundraisers that are working for bosses who are not fundraisers that don't mm. don't understand the processes, you know, that, that sort of thing. But one of the ways that sometimes you can manage this sort of a conflict is to manage up in the sense of making the manager aware of the trade-off that is happening. Uh, by saying, oh, absolutely, I would be uh, happy to uh, help out with uh, uh, folding the napkins for that uh, event. That'll be a very exciting thing. Um, but um, I won't be able to schedule and go on these visits with some of our uh, major donors and top supporters to maintain those relationships uh, during the time that I'm doing that. Uh, does that fit what you want me to be doing? Right. So rather than having it as this sort of passive, accidental thing where at the end of the year, then you get the grumpy, well, why didn't you go on more visits? Uh, you're actually presenting it as a confirmation uh, just to make sure um, this is where you want me to be spending my time rather than spending my time uh, over here, because I am happy to be doing either one. Right. Yeah. That's sort of the I, I love good. a good napkin fold. It's uh, <laughs> I can get a exactly. crease on there like you've never seen. <laughs> exactly. Balloons. I could tie it. You know, I mean, I, I am I'm golden with all of those things. Uh, and if that's what you want me to be doing, fantastic. But I can't be doing these other things during that time. So just making sure that's what right. you're looking for. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I think that's a great approach. The other thing I've always had in my career as a natural escape valve is I've just had things on the calendar, like just about every day, like, like unless, uh, and so what I mean by that is like, if I've got visits that are on the calendar two to three weeks out and something comes up as like, Hey, we, we got to fold napkins for, for two days straight on, you know, these, these days, it's even a further level of not only this will keep me, from theoretically doing it but like i've got this <laughs> i've got this visit scheduled with bob and sue mm -hmm. should i call them and tell them i have to reschedule kind of thing mm -hmm. and the the more we can just and, and and it's kind of a it's a tricky thing it's like what comes first the chicken or the egg but sometimes the more we can prove from like having money in the bank because we close gifts frequently the mm -hmm. easier it is for the managers to know, well, of course, we're not going to have, you know, Sam fold napkins because he's out closing six and seven figure gifts all the time. But if, if we haven't had that track record yet, sometimes to the manager, it's like, well, they're not really doing much productive anyway. So I guess we'll have them help out with these menial tasks kind of thing. So it's kind of a, it, it's a, it's a lot easier once the gift officer has big wins under their belt, I think, to uh, to illustrate that more clearly. Yeah, that's true. And, and it's always going to be a challenge because oftentimes your charity managers, not your fundraisers, but your charity managers, they see fundraising as 
going out and telling people these charity administrator hero story. Here's all the wonderful things we're doing. Aren't we fantastic? Um, don't you want to, uh, uh, to uh, give us money because of how fantastic we are? And because they see it that way, um, sometimes there's a sense of, well, how long should that take, right? Sh- shouldn't you be able to go out and let people know how fantastic we are very quickly? Uh, and it, it, as opposed to um, understanding these longer processes of helping the individual donors through their journey of what kind of an impact they want to make and constructing giving opportunities that match that, but also advance the goals of the organization and that longer uh, process that fundamentally delivers more value to the donor. So it can be kind of this clash of worldviews uh, where for you know, fundamentally for the charity manager, they see fundraising as a message that says, uh, um, you know, if I were to translate that to me personally, uh, hello, uh, I'm Russell. I'm fantastic. Can I have some money, please? Yeah. (laughs) It turns out that's not as inspirational as you might think. Um, I've tried it and it's unsuccessful. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And it can be a real challenge, especially for organizations moving from those uh, massive amount of high volume, small dollar gifts where that organization hero story can work for your $20 gifts. And then when they're trying to move into the major gifts, then, then, there, then there's these sort of roadblocks of, well, okay, we'll just add another zero onto the ask. We're still just right. as fantastic. You know, <laughs> this shouldn't be hard, but it's actually from a story perspective, it's a completely different uh, story process and uh, a different story that you're telling for those very large gifts. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to ask you one more question related to this, and then we'll do some little closing remarks. But um, going back to our our first character, this the guy with the um, you know medical problem, and he right. just show up on people's doors. Right. Many times, you said he would leave with them a request from the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, it sounds like he would frequently, on a first visit, ask somebody for a gift, or it would at least happen sometimes. Um, talk about that a little bit, and the. Yeah, asking people for a gift on a first visit or not and kind of, yeah, some of your thoughts on that. Sure, absolutely. So one of the limitations that he had was he wasn't going to see them again for a year. Hmm. Um, So this was just traveling, going, but he needed to keep that visit social. In other words, he's showing up unannounced, uh, coming in and, uh, you know, hey, how are you doing? Here's what's going on uh, at the organization. So the way he did that was to leave behind the request. Hmm. It wasn't a request from him. It was from the president and to let them know, um, don't make any decision today. This is for you to consider later. Now, that was important because it maintained that visit as being a social visit, that yeah. this was not, I'm going to show up at the door and ask for something, uh, ask for cash, right? Yeah. Um, now, this is important because we actually want to separate those two visits. Um, mm. And they could be more than two, but certainly at least two. One where we are asking these questions that connect the donor's identity with our organization, their life story, their values, their people, helping them define a personally meaningful victory. And then what we want to get 
is technically we want to get permission to make the ask, but actually we want to get uh, permission to be able to share some interesting options with them, uh, to share some ideas that other people like them have uh, found to be pretty interesting that I think might fit with what you're telling me about what's important to you and what kind of an impact that you would like to make. Do you mind if we set up a time that we could go over some of those ideas and you could give me some of your thoughts and reactions to that? So we actually want to separate that so that initial meeting is purely social conversational. We are helping the donor in that hero story. And there's actually some psychological reasons for that, because if the donor knows we're going to be presenting giving options later, Mm -hmm. it lets them think about that over, you know, a period of weeks, Uh, especially if we've shared a story about gifts from assets, right? Now it gives them time to think about that. And One other thing that I really want to emphasize uh, on this, Kevin, is that if you understand that the goal is to get the next meeting at which several valuable, interesting opportunities will be presented, this can be so powerful for fundraisers who are afraid to talk about gifts of assets. Fundraisers go into this by saying, oh, I don't want to ask, you know, like, how's the market been treating you and start talking about assets because they might turn around and say, well, I've got this subchapter S corporation stock that I've been thinking about sticking into a charitable remainder trust, but I'm not sure about unrelated business income tax on that. What should I do? And they feel like that meeting is like a final exam where they're going to need to know tax law and questions and all that, you know. And the reality is, even if you did know those answers, you actually shouldn't give those answers in that meeting right off the cuff. Instead, you should use that as a motivation for the next meeting. In other words, the goal is to say, um, yeah, you know, I I know we've got some great experts I could spend some time talking uh, with. I could put together some different ideas that deal with that kind of an asset that I know some of our other donors have uh, used them really successfully in the past to make a big impact and also uh, beneficial on the taxes. Uh, uh, Would you mind if we set up a time where I could uh, put some of those things together and share them with you? So the idea, and once they've said yes, then if you want, you can say, so So tell me the story of this uh, of this asset or of this business or of this piece of property. You know, yeah. how did you get into it and, uh, and uh, how long have you owned it and, and what are you planning to do with it, right? So uh, because now we've, we've got a reason to ask those questions. Well, my whole point is fundraisers are scared of talking about gifts of assets because they think they're going to be thrown into a final exam where they're going to have to answer all of these tax law questions. And the reality is the goal is to get the next meeting at which some really interesting options are going to be presented. That gives you plenty of time to make phone calls, get some ideas, put some stuff together uh, that you can uh, share with them. But it also makes you less afraid to talk about shares of stock or share a story about another donor who made a gift of an asset. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's one of the things I always tell people is so many times, you know, you you talk about it as the final exam. I view it a lot like the way I think of it a lot of times is like, this is my one shot. You know, it's like, if if I don't do it, like, or perfect it right now, like, I'm never going to be able to, to fix it. It's like, no, like, this is, this is the first visit of many. You're going if you do this well, you will be in relationship with this person 
for like potentially decades and it you do not have to accomplish everything on the first visit or on or on the the first time you start talking about a gift and exactly what you said not knowing all the answers is a great reason to come back for the next visit and maybe even and related with that a lot of times if you start asking somebody for a gift that's really significant to them usually they're not going to make that decision right then and there anyway it's like oh this is the biggest gift we've ever made we'll have one conversation with johnny for 20 minutes and then pull the trigger usually there's a (laughs) usually there's a okay we had the initial ask let's think about it talk about it you know amongst ourselves we're probably going to come back with more questions we didn't have originally and it's just the beginning of that conversation so this the final exam thing is a total myth and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just taking some pressure off and, and just starting the conversation. So yeah, absolutely. Just have the right goal. The goal is not to close that gift. Then the goal is to get the next meeting at which you can present some valuable options that the donor can give you thoughts and reactions to. Exactly. So we are, basically out of time here. This was an amazing conversation. I'm sure Great. everyone is going to want to uh, have you back on because this is the this is the PhD of, uh, of major gifts right here. And uh, but in the meantime, tell people a little bit in a couple minutes just about your relationship with Market Smart, who sponsored this podcast. And um, yeah, just like some of the stuff you're doing with them, you've got the course related to your books. If you could give people a quick, you know, 60 second uh, intro and where they can find out more about that or just all of your work. Yeah. So I, I teach here at Texas Tech University graduate courses that do a deep dive into this research on charitable decision making and major gifts decision making. Um, I also share that information for free. And what Greg has done is to put together a CFRE course uh, that is actually all online, uh, all accessible, that not only takes the stuff that I've done, but takes all of the information that he's gathered from years and years of working with the hundreds of different nonprofit organizations and merged it together. So it's not as uh, just theoretical like I yeah. love to be as a professor. It's super practical. Uh, and I know a lot of people are having good experiences uh, with that. Uh, and uh, and also uh, he uh, shares my stuff uh, for free. If you just want the books that show the research, yeah. I know he's got digital copies of that. Um, I share those for free as well. And it's just sort of a good uh, open relationship there where I send him stuff, he's interested in it, and then he translates it for frontline fundraisers in a really practical way that uh, I, I think some folks have had some good experiences with. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Russell. This was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, talking again soon for another episode because this was fun. Great, great. Thanks for the invitation. That was Dr. Russell James with Texas Tech University. Um, I am certain y'all enjoyed this episode. If you did and you want to hear more from Dr. Russell James, uh, let me know. I am interested to have him back on the show just because I want to talk to him because I learned a lot here. Um, Anyway, yeah, thanks so much for listening. If this episode was valuable, please share it with your friends, other people you know in the fundraising world, and go ahead and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're super close to 100 
five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and the reviews there really help the show get into new listeners' ears. So please go ahead, leave a rating and review. I'd encourage you to check out what Dr. James is doing with MarketSmart. And also thank, you know, I want to thank MarketSmart so much for sponsoring this podcast. And as always, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from knocking on somebody's door and having a conversation that could lead to a significant gift.